Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today on Core Principles, I'm pleased to welcome the editor of First Things, Dr. R.R. Reno. Uh, how are you doing today, Rusty? Oh, I'm doing just fine. It's a beautiful sunny day in New York City. Well, thank you for being with me. I want to ask you about your publication, First Things, and about the Institute on Religion and Public Life. But first, I'd like to give listeners a little background uh, about you and your path to your current position. Could you fill us in on how you got where you are? My twisting and turning path. I studied theology and did a PhD in theology and taught theology at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska for 20 years from 1990 to 2010. But when I started teaching, a new magazine was founded called First Things. And its vision was to be a voice for religious folks in public debate. And my interests in theology were in Christianity and culture. So First Things was sort of something I read very closely. And then I started writing for the magazine. And one thing led to another, and I did a little part-time work for the magazine. And then in 2011, I was offered the position as editor-in-chief of the magazine. And so I, I left academia and entered, entered the even more disreputable world of journalism. <laughs> and so I've been running First Things for the last 10 years. First Things is described as America's most influential journal of religion and public life. And with a name like First Things, it's obvious to me that there must be some core principles. See what I did there uh, for you to uh, focus on and uh, to preserve. So what are some of the first things that you champion? What are a couple of the primary principles that you encourage readers to uphold and to defend? I think if you look at our history, and I'm quite explicit about it, there are really three things that we're trying to achieve. Uh, the first is a political principle, which is that the liberal democratic project of the United States of America will only succeed if it's rooted in a vibrant religious culture. So although we have separation of church and state, and thankfully so, and First Amendment, very dear to me, that our liberal freedoms are anchored in our religious heritage. Doesn't mean everybody has to be a Christian, doesn't mean everybody has to go to church, but it does mean there needs to be a vibrant religious voice in the give and take of political discussion and debate. First Things exists to give that voice, to amplify that voice. The second is cultural. And that is the dignity and achievement of Western culture and the duty all of us have to transmit to the next generation the monuments of literature and, and philosophy and theology to the next generation. So cultural transmission, that's our second principle, core principle. And then the third is, is religious and explicitly, which is that we are committed to orthodoxy in religion. And the way I put it is that we become more fully human to the degree that we become more obedient to God's will for us. And so this is a direct rejection of the modern conceit that religious obedience is at war with our dignity as 
free and rational creatures. So the first thing says, no, 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 no. If you want to fully realize your freedom and the human capacity for reason, then the life of faith is the royal road to that particular goal. That's valuable. I want to get into the deep subjects, but you mentioned culture and I was on your website today and I read a movie review. And so I just wanted to say, if you want to give some feedback to uh, Alexei Sargent, uh, he wrote about the new movie, The Batman. I loved his review. I had seen the movie, oh, but I got something out of the movie only after reading his review. So that's a great value added for any sort of critique of any sort of entertainment project or cultural thing. Uh, movies aren't high culture, but some of them have something to say, and, and I didn't even recognize something that that movie had to say, but I, I do now, and that's courtesy of First Things. I have a review in the current issue, which just went live on the website. In my regular column, I review The Worst Person in the World, mm. which is a, um, a Norwegian film that I really recommend to listener. It's a grown-up film about what it means to live in a liquid world where we don't have any strong anchoring attachments. Uh. So we would drift. The main character, exactly. The main character is a, a young woman who, who drifts, exactly. Drifts partly from her own choice, but partly because she lives in a society where no one's encouraging her to, to cast an anchor out. Uh, marriage, children, uh, faith. These are the great anchors of life for most people. But, you know, we live in a time when, when those anchors are, are not given to young people. Uh, and in some cases that people are actively told that that's, you're not going to have a happy life if you anchor your life in the commitments of marriage and family and faith. Everything ties together. Uh, it's not a spoiler, but uh, in the Batman, waters rushing and pushing things where they shouldn't go is a visually thematic element. And the Batman has to be a sort of anchor for the people of his town. So everything ties together there uh, very neatly. Well, a theme that's been running through some of the recent discussions I've been having with people is about the way th that people discuss topics and debate things or don't discuss and debate. Yeah, especially don't, yes. Yeah. Uh, Tim Barton of wall builders reminded me that uh, truth welcomes questions, but falsehood flees from challenge. And uh, another guest, Amala Epinobi of breaker. You explained to me that it's okay for conservatives to disagree with each other on certain things because we are pursuing common worthwhile goals that are bigger than the topics we're talking about and we shouldn't get wrapped up in specific disagreements. With the hundreds of influential people who've written for uh, or produced content for you with First Things, there's bound to be topical disagreements. So why do you suppose that the, that, the, oh, indeed. <laughs> that, that the progressives or the leftists are more monolithic in their messaging and why should we be wary of uh, groupthink as the progressives exhibit? Probably, I think I would identify two problems that progressives face. One problem is a lack of transcendence. And so if you don't have, transcendence saves you from the notion that your political disagreements are of ultimate importance. And so my beautiful, charming, incredibly intelligent wife, does not hold actually, I think, altogether wise political views as compared to my perfect and, and pristine political views. But we share a common faith in the existence and benevolence of God. 
And so this is uh, this anchors, if you will, our disagreements in in a, in a shared sense of transcendence. Even though she's Jewish and I'm Christian, so it's not as though we're religiously in agreement, but we agree that there's something greater than politics and it relativizes politics. So that's one aspect. The second thing is that the very term progressive ties into a view of truth as an evolving and historically conditioned reality. And so as a result, it has to be defended or advanced in a way that if you think truth is rated, rooted in nature in a natural sense, in God in a supernatural sense, then you, you could say that truth can take care of itself, so to speak, and doesn't need my partisanship. Although I think I have a responsibility to speak the truth, and I have a responsibility to be loyal to the truth, and I certainly owe my fellow citizens what I think is a truthful uh, witness. But the, the progressive says, well, the future brings a new truth. And so that new truth needs my partisan support to usher in. You know, progressives talk about being on the right side of history. Mm. And I, I don't think a conservative thinks of him or herself as being on the right side of history. You know, I'm, I'm loyal to things that are not historically changing. So I think both of those things make the progressive more vulnerable to a, a heated and intolerant partisanship. Yes, sir. I recognize that. I think there's wisdom in that. Even though it is fine and healthy and good and appropriate to disagree on certain things, there are obviously first things, core principles that are less appropriate for compromise. And how do we best learn, Dr. Reno, to discern what those things are and what we should hold as inalterable? Yeah, wow. That's uh, treatises I've been written on metaphysics and epistemology to try to settle that question. But I think for for my readership, the two, as I said, the two anchors are nature below and God above. I think it's important for us to distinguish between the first things, you know, alterable truths and the and the, the ever questionable judgments of prudence. And so the question about whether or not men and women are different, you know, I think goes back to or there even exists such a thing as women today, goes back to Genesis 1. So that's both a revealed truth and also a truth of nature, biology. You know, but what to do about the transgender mania that is going through our society is a question of prudential judgment. And so I think, uh, again, I think this is an advantage we have as conservatives to be able to make that distinction. It allows us to be flexible with respect to how we think about how schools should respond and, and how the government should respond uh, while being implacable in our insistence on the, on the, 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 the unalterable truth about the difference between the complementarity between men and women. Yes, sir. That is a good uh, example. I used to think that Genesis 1 says male and female, he created them, was sort of uh, flowery, stating the obvious, but of course, God knew that one of these days humans were going to rail against that truth. And so he says, Moses, I want you to write this down. Well, yeah, St. Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas notes that uh, many things revealed in the Bible are what he calls natural truths that are truths that are available to reason and not supernatural truths, truths that we only know by uh, the revelation of God. But he points out, uh, the fall of man is such, and the, the wounds of sin are great enough 
that we often forget or cannot are blind to the truths of nature. Then, and so one function of revelation is to remind us of what we should already know. So my background is science and engineering. And so I look at things through that lens also. And I have trouble ascribing the moniker party of science to a group of folks who reject scientific observations that show chromosomes are determinative and indicative of sex and gender. So that is a good example because people can understand there are such things as X and Y chromosomes and that hundred percent of the time they indicate a certain thing. Uh, and we just reject it because some people are uncomfortable with it. It's, it's unfortunate. And you point out that the, the left or progressives or whatever they call themselves this week are so adamant they have to defend and push their side against anything, even scientific observation or just objective reality, to the point where you get in Florida a simple law that says for certain age range at the beginning of primary school and even kindergarten, we're not going to have the teachers talking about these topics that require a little more maturity to process and the left loses their minds and makes up a false narrative about what this law is and demands that everybody hate the governor and everybody else down there for being so bigoted, which makes no sense whatsoever. There is an hysteria about transgenderism and children are very susceptible to that hysteria. I just, whatever you think about, about these matters, it just strikes me as just, basic common sense that you protect small, you know, young children from this hysteria. I mean, who knows what they'll think when they're 17 years old, but good parenting shields children from influences that, as you point out, they can't, they, that they can't process at a younger age. Yeah. We all know that. Yes. It is a sign of the mania and um, also the fragility of the progressive view that it doesn't allow for any dissent because dissent it throws a spotlight on uh, the fragility and implausibility, as you point out, to sort of biological implausibility of a lot of claims about what it means, progressive claims about male and femaleness. Yes. As objects of choice rather than our natural inheritance. Mm. Well, Dr. Rusty Reno, your publishing organization is called the Institute on Religion and Public Life. Now, for people who have been told that religious views need to be kept out of public life, how do we best correct that misunderstanding and wrongful advice? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this kind of specious and ridiculous application of the separation of church and state concept. The, a democratic society welcomes the voices of its citizens as we try to shape the future of our country together. And there is no reason why a person has to speak religiously. And there is no reason why a person can, is not permitted to speak religiously. And the fact that our, my motives and my vocabulary for that matter is rooted in my religious faith does not disqualify me from participating in the public square. Like it's just a simple uh, observation. It's not the source of one's ideas. It's the question about whether my fellow citizens find them persuasive. And like I say, our constitution prohibits religious tests for public office. I think that's a very wise prohibition. 
It prohibits religious establishment, certainly by our national government. And I think that is also a very wise one. And it, and it, it ensures a free exercise of religion, a very important uh, principle. But in no sense does our constitution prohibit, prescribe, or forbid religious people to speak religiously in public affairs. Uh, and, and I think only in, it's only the last generation secular dominance of elite culture that has perpetuated this fallacy about the nature of our country and what is required by our very fine constitutional system. I, I see that. And I, I lament the fact that uh, they, they try so hard to say, no, no, uh, separation of church and state means that you can't uh, embrace any view that has any tie to any religion. Well, that would disqualify almost everything everybody believes uh, in some way. Well, there is a, a certain extent to which secularism and progressivism itself has strongly religious qualities to it. Oh, yes. And so that we don't want to establish that religion, uh, you know, in such a way that it can make make itself a test uh, for religious office so that you could say that, you know, you can't get a Supreme Court nomination if you are religious, that could become the paradox of taking the separation of church and state um, too far, is to make irreligion a test of religious office. And that is an idea that the left might embrace if they thought they could get away with it, unfortunately. Well, looking at current events, what are the things that Americans should perhaps give more serious attention to than we probably are? Wow, great question. I do think that social media, the metaverse, I think that we ought to give serious consideration to the harms that social media do to young people and uh, begin to ponder what is necessary to limit the damage that it does to young people. At the very least, uh, local school boards need to just completely set aside the fantasy of the 1990s and aughts that every child should have an iPad or there should be a screen in front of every child. I think by 2022, we know that screens are actually imperil the mental health of young people. So we should be in the business of screen reduction. And also it's probably bad for our political culture. I mean, the Twitter mobs and the cancel culture are really products of social media. This is something that didn't happen before we had social media. So I think we just need to give thought to how to, you know, when the automobile first came on the scene, there were no laws, there were no traffic laws because there weren't so many cars. And over time, we realized we had to actually uh, establish laws to, you know, to, to control the flow of traffic. In England, uh, 250 years ago was a wash and gin, and they had to develop laws to limit uh, the sale of gin. And so we need to think about uh, screens, social media, and how we can how we can manage that so it actually adds to our lives rather than dominating our lives. And that's something that's a matter of personal discipline, but it's also a social issue that we all need to put our minds on how to, how to address. Yes. And I think in terms of uh, how the law addresses new things that didn't have consideration before, President Trump was on to something when he was uh, looking into how these social media platforms had been protected as if they were uh, telephone utilities, where you could say something on a social media and Mark Zuckerberg or Jack, 
whoever he is over at Twitter, wouldn't be liable for the bad thing that I said uh, on his platform. Well, if they had that protection, then uh, President Trump argued they shouldn't be able to say, well, I'm going to shut you down because I don't like your opinion because the phone company can't pull your service because you and I call each other up and say, I'm voting for so-and-so. How do you feel about that? So there's got to be a balance and there has to be a check on the sort of power that these new media have. Charlie Kirk told me once uh, the government is the ones that can truly censor, but they only wish they had the power to censor like the Facebook and Twitter of the world, uh, YouTube and the rest of these guys. I agree. And I think the, uh, President Trump was, was certainly correct in that. And one sees a growing consensus that we need to do something about the surpassing power of just a very few companies over our virtual lives. One of my friends, an economist has proposed, we should be compensated for social media's use of our personal information. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you know, cause they harvest, that's how they make their money is by um, providing algorithms for ads to be targeted to us. And they can only do that if they harvest information. And so just like we click a little button, you know, allowing them to do that, we maybe the smart lawyers need to come up with a plan where we get a couple pennies for every gigabyte of information they harvest. And over time, that might mean, you know, a couple hundred dollars in the pocket of every American once a year. And it would diminish the power of these companies because it would deter them from following us around everywhere. That is extraordinary. And we look at Mark Zuckerberg using, what was it, $330 million of his dollars that he got by advertising uh you know, through our name, image, and likeness to help fraud in the, the 2020 election. And yes, uh, I meant to say that. <laughs> so come at me. I think uh, the F word, you know, <laughs> the whatever one thinks about the vote count on election day, there is no question that the election in 2022 was, was characterized by unprecedented uh, efforts funded to the tunes of probably more than a billion dollars to change our electoral laws and to influence the outcome of the election. And that's why and, HB1 was a sword they wanted to fall on because they wanted to perpetuate that nationwide. Yes, and I think uh, I think the Republican Party was asleep at the wheel during, in 2020 and uh, should have fought some of these changes in our electoral laws. It certainly should have been a more vigorous watchdog to the kind of money that Zuckerberg spent. But I do feel that the Republican Party has gotten a measure of reality check from that experience and has rightfully resisted this attempt to fundamentally change our electoral system. Well, as we wrap up, I would say that uh, you, you just jogged something in my thought process that I had never considered before. It's almost like that uh, the Zuckerbergs and others need to pay us for name, image, and likeness like they're doing now for NCAA athletes. And since it is March, and since I am in Kentucky, that means that I am insane for college basketball. So I have I have a hypothetical Yes, sir. I have a hypothetical question for you, Rusty Reno. Your graduate level alma mater, Yale, uh, if they were to play against the University of Creighton, where you were a professor, who would you root for? Oh, definitely Creighton. There's nothing about Yale that at this point I would like to see succeed. Ooh. In fact, I think that Ivy League institutions have become a cancer 
uh, in our society. And were I to be advising folks in Washington, I would say the best, it's in the best interests of our country that those institutions become significantly less rich and significantly less powerful and that our educational landscape uh, be balanced out. We face the same problem in higher ed that we face in our society as a whole. The rich have gotten richer and everybody else has uh, been mired in stagnant um, uh, situation. And uh, I, have, I have encouraged and I've proposed a, a supersized endowment tax. I, I think that the principle of these supersized endowments should be taxed at a progressive rate on the basis of its size on a per student basis. Mm. And that the money used should be uh, should be used to pay for a free community college education. Community colleges are not the problem in America. It's the top 50 elite universities that have incubated some of the most destructive tendencies in our society, uh, especially the sort of woke uh, revolution that is afflicting, afflicting our society and is potentially going to cast us into a kind of nightmare of quasi-totalitarian oppression. That is a topic for an entire series on this program we could talk about that is a rich area of great importance to everyone who's concerned about uh, the United States and liberty and free expression. And we see things like the mayor uh, out there in Berkeley cheering for the the folks on campus at uh, UC Berkeley who are burning up cars and destroying property because they don't want some conservative to be allowed to speak. I thought that was the free speech capital of the world, but the mayor's cheering on destruction of property just to make the point that we hate this guy that wants to talk. (laughs) That's crazy. We're circling back to our earlier part of our conversation on the fragility of progressivism and its need to politically defend truth their conception of so-called truth versus a conservative who anchors his beliefs in something more fundamental, such that we don't have to mobilize, you know, uh, mobs in the street to defend our, our vision of truth. Indeed. Well, that is a great uh, way to tie a bow on this entire discussion. Dr. Rusty Reno, I appreciate you sharing time with me today on Core Principles. Uh, thank you very much, and God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.